and welcome to this episode of Keeping Track. My guest today is originally from Skibbereen, where real West Cork begins. She studied arts management in UCD and became interested in the visual arts through working in a large gallery in New York for a summer. She then went on to work at the Irish Museum of Modern Art for four years. She's appointed director of the National Sculpture Factory in Cork in 1986. And after this, she went on to work for the Dublin Docklands Development Authority. She was the deputy director overseeing Cork's successful European Capital of Culture bid for 2005 and remained in that role for its year-long term. She's now the director of the Crawford Art Gallery and has been since February 2018. We are here to talk about the importance of art institutions in civic spaces and much, much more. So without any further chatter from me, I'd like to welcome Mary McCarthy to the show. Thanks. Delighted to be here. Do you want to give us your first tune to ease us in? Yeah, I suppose. I was thinking back about my time in UCC and the time when I was getting into my profession, so around the early 90s. And I think the band Pulp Common People is a real theme song for me at that point. It was kind of very happy, but very challenging. Music for me is very evocative. It brings you back to points in your life. I suppose Jarvis Cocker in particular was around that kind of art college movement and I think those movements when art students and musicians are together are really formative and there was a real explosion of that kind of indie pop coming out of particularly England at that time. She came from Greece, she had the thirst for knowledge She studied sculpture at St Martin's College That's where I
was Common People by Pulp, and that was picked today by my guest Mary McCarthy. Mary is the director of the Crawford Art Gallery. Mary, I'll start with a very broad question. For people listening who may never think to step inside an art gallery, why do you think art and spaces for art are so important in our civic landscape? I think they're really important, and no more so than here in Cork in particular, and we're really lucky to be right in the centre of Cork, so we're right in Emmet Place, right near the main shopping street. I think it's important that there are spaces that are free, that young people, older people, people of all ages, all nationalities are welcome as equals. Um, also that it's a space that people can repeat visit. We have certain people who come in every week, if not every few days, so they begin to have a relationship with your collection and your buildings and your people. I think the way the world is now, it's really important that we have this free speech. Uh, we're seeing in various countries worldwide where institutions are coming under challenge for freedom of expression. It's really important that art kind of allows people to have different uh, possibilities of a future. So for me, one of the most important things about the work that artists do of all genres, I suppose, it doesn't dictate to people what to think necessarily, but it allows people to see something of themselves, of their own experiences in it. So it is a sort of provocation of future possibilities. So I would say it's really important as openness. And I think, you know, here in Cork with Triscoll, Glucksman, Crawford, there's a number of kind of exhibition spaces, Nanonagle, a newer space on the scene, that I think have been really taken on board by the citizens of Cork as very much public places. How did you discover your love for the arts? Does it go back to your formative years in Skibbereen, do you think? Yeah, I think like uh, certainly growing up in West Cork, you know, there were lots of artists around all different art forms, like in the 70s and 60s, artists moved there and migrated. So growing up, I suppose like most people of my generation in Ireland, our first exposure to artists was through visiting artists in residence and schools programme. We weren't, there weren't really big art programmes when we were in school and you generally had to do a language if you wanted to go to university. So that kind of, in my secondary school, that ruled out studying art actually. So you know, your path was quite narrow, but artists were everywhere. And I think that was, for me, there were artists living all around us. And my parents became friendly with uh, an American pair of journalists who encountered my parents actually through buying some organic hay. And they lived out in uh, Sheep's Head Peninsula, that direction. And I suppose they were journalists in New York. My sister and I would have grown up listening to a lot of their stories. So that definitely gave me, I suppose, an interest in the creative side. Like they were journalists, they were talking about the people they'd interviewed. They were Mary and Donald Grant, they've since passed away. But that definitely would have been a formative moment. And then I think, you know, in Skibreen, we had the West Cork Arts Centre was very active in the kind of 70s. And then when you came to university, like Cork had a fairly vibrant, the art college being near the university, Triscoll Arts Centre was very active in that particular time. So I suppose there was a lot of, also it was a time when there was a lot of kind of expression. You know, we were, you know, just joined the European Union. We were really beginning to express our identity as Irish people. And I suppose culture was really becoming quite something. So I kind of knew early on I wanted to work in the arts. I didn't kind of know what that meant. I thought for a while I would lie and tell people I wanted to work in communications because that was palatable to people. You know, when you were in college saying you wanted to work in the arts, that really didn't have an outcome because the professionalisation of the arts in Ireland, so to speak, really happened in the 90s. So they weren't ready-made jobs for my generation either, actually. You studied in UCC as well? Yes, I was here from uh, 87 to 90 and 92 to 93. Really happy times here. Kind of interesting because it was a much smaller college, but met some of my best friends that I still have here. I think when I was here, it was like eight to 10,000 people. It was a much smaller campus. So that probably sounds like decades different centuries, which it is, I go to your listeners. And like then we didn't have a Glucksman. You know, there used to be exhibitions here in the Boole Library, actually, which were organised by the philosophy department or professors who were interested. It's a much smaller community. Did you do a J1 to New York? I am fortunate to be born on the 4th of July. So being in New York on the 4th of July, I got my first job actually in the arts. Uh, but my first encounter with New York was through a J1 visa. And then I was one of the lucky people who got a Donnelly visa. So I had legal status in the States. But the J1 was a fantastic introduction. 
And I think, I suppose I was thinking about that, like us going to New York was like a new world in the 90s. You know, it was a place of possibility. And that's what's a big change in the last 30 years, how that sense of possibility is seemingly much more shut down. You know, going to America for us was a place of optimism. I still think it's a place of big optimism possibility, but politically it's a very different world. And it's probably not somewhere where a lot of people want to align themselves as much anymore as my generation did at that time. Yeah, New York may not be everybody's uh, cup of tea, but for creatives um, in an urban sprawl and cultural melting pot like New York, there is a unique vitality about the place at a street level. Do you think that art can only truly thrive in a metropolitan setting or can small cities like Cork try to emulate that vitality? I think vitality can be anywhere, actually. That's the thing. I think you do need a certain critical mass and this kind of rubbing up of creatives, like whether I talk about like pulp kind of being, you know, around the arts, the visual arts students of the time and forming the music students. There not being such hard lines between creatives. I think for the, for the kind of hybridity, you do need clusters, but I think Cork is certainly of that size. But I think that's the big challenge the city's now that creatives can't afford to live in cities. So we are finding that artists are moving further and further remote. And actually, I think that is can be very beneficial to the making and processing of work. But for artists to be in communication with each other can be very isolating. And that's something I suppose that we in the gallery are very conscious of and would try and create communities around us, be it on opening nights or workshops, that no matter where artists live, that they feel part of your community. But certainly larger cities are suffering now, be it Dublin or New York or London, because it is difficult to live. Like artists have to put so much of their energy into into like just kind of having a home, you know, sustaining themselves. Whereas Cork, I would hope, is still at the size where we can have this creative clusters. Nick Cave for me as an artist has always been very interesting. I think the way he collaborates, I think he's an amazing songwriter, performer. I'm of the generation who used to go down to Lazard, those amazing legendary concerts from the kind of 93 to 96 period. And I remember once standing in the audience, uh, I think I was watching Patti Smith at the time and there was Nick Cave just standing beside me having come off stage. So I have a real soft spot for Nick Cave. Tumbling down 
That was the ship song by Nick Cave, and I was picked today by my guest Mary McCarthy. Mary is the director of the Crawford Art Gallery. Mary, can we look back at your time as deputy director of Cork as European Capital of Culture in 2005? What is the process like to secure a successful bid to be the European Capital of Culture? Terrifying would be the answer to that. It was really competitive. Like we were up against Galway, um, Limerick, and Waterford at the time because it was it was Ireland's to play for. Um, so I was kind of on the bid team. It was exciting and exhilarating, but you knew you couldn't afford to lose it. It was kind of once in a generational opportunity. And then you have to be careful what you wish for once you've got it. It's a huge amount of work to be done. It, it seems like a lifetime ago. It's nearly 20 years, which is interesting. And I think anybody who have experienced capital culture in Cork at the time will see that there's been a transformation of the sector, you know, and I suppose more recently, a bit of a decimation of the sector, I would say. So I think it will be interesting to look back in the 20th anniversary 
and look at uh, the changes in the landscape and the changes, I suppose, in the funding and administration and the administrative burdens, I think, on the creative sector now. It must have been a lot to manage the cultural demand in a city. What did you learn about the business of selling culture from that time? Yeah, I suppose what was really challenging was uh, the cultural sector was very strong here. Like in a way, you win the designation because you're already a cultural city. And I suppose the opportunity was to try and create opportunities for that sector to shine and to be somewhat recognised more by the citizens and funders and policymakers of their worth. Um, what we definitely he- he- you know, heard from myself and the rest of the programming team, Tony Sheen and Tom McCarthy and others at the time was that the sector wanted to make connections with their international peers. So there was a lot, like if you remember Kirkadurka put on this amazing series of international events in Cork with their peers actually. So it was people wanted to be seen in the context of a bigger world. And I suppose that was really important to us as programmers. From the public view, we could never give enough information. We probably didn't manage expectations fully, you know, so whenever we'd release programs be like, well, where's the rest of it? Uh, There was a lot of what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. I think people also are impatient, actually ourselves included in the cultural sector, that people want to mobilise big programmes fast. Like culture takes time to percolate. You can't manufacture programmes in six months or a year. It takes time to bed down. If the cultural sector are developing those partnerships, they need time to develop the ideas, especially if you're presenting new work. There's an element of risk. And I think that's one thing that sometimes the business community are sometimes a little impatient with us in the cultural sector that they want to know what can they fund and what can they resource. But the, you know, that kind of back, the thinking, the kind of innovation in their world takes time actually and significant resources. And it's not always given the same resources or time in the cultural sector. It's almost like, why can't you just whip it up or make it up? You know, why can't you just pull that one out of the bag? There was a counter movement called Where's Me Culture who complained the programme for 2005 was too elitist. Was it a hard role to navigate at times? It certainly was. I learned a lot to it. It was a very tough job, you know, and I think anybody who's ever worked in a European capital of culture, because your peers are also turning against you at times, you know, and I suppose you are also conscious you live in a city, you want to work in that city again. I suppose you also realise you've got to toughen up. It's not a popularity concert, you know. And I think that, yeah, it was tough, but I think that mo- that movement of Warriors Culture was actually, in hindsight, very productive to the overall capital of culture because it did create another vehicle for dissent. And I think, maybe as Irish people as well, we don't like a lot of criticism. We're not good at negotiating debate, you know, that it's either you're with me or against me. We have a bit of a tribal mentality, I think, around discussion. And I think that is unfortunate around navigating complex ideas. But I think we weren't prepared for the expectation management. Yeah. Do you think looking back it was a success or did Cork need more time to prepare? Would Cork be more ready for something like that now? You know what? I don't. I think it was a success and I don't think things would be much different. The discussion might be different. Some of the actions might be different. But actually, in ways, maybe we were as strong, if not stronger, creatively then. You know, like Cork Dirk is no longer. It's kind Mm. of heartbreaking. Um, a number, the film festival has had a change. You know, there's been a number of changes. You know, there's two new festivals now, you could say. Like there's, uh, you know, what was part, the older kind of Cork Film Festival is still there. And then there's the indie. So you've had these kind of changes, I suppose, in the sector. But I think that in some ways you're never ready for that kind of spotlighting, actually. I think it was good that Cork took the opportunity. And I think certainly the business community, like things that still exist would be like the Great Ocean City Race. Like that's amazing legacy. I think if you think of all the music that came out of it, like the Live at the Marquee, which was a side project, but it was kind of initiated through the opportunity of capital culture, that's still going and now has its extension. So bigger events started to come to Cork. And I think that 
you know, has remained. And certainly artists like Salgado, generations of people who saw that work about the environment won't forget that, actually. Um, there was significant investment in, in, in cultural organisations that gave them the opportunity to expand themselves. Even indeed, my own organisation, Crawford Art Gallery, became a cultural institution on the back of that in 2006. So it produced these great shows, James Barry, Cork Silver and Gold. And I think the state saw that, well, Crawford is a comparator of like the National Gallery or IMA. So that then it got National Cultural Institution status. So it's, it'll be 20 years next year. What are your overriding memories of that time? Stress, I'd say, really, being honest. I suppose, like, the the run-up to it was hard for us team. We were a very small team. The resources were a bit uncertain uh, for a lot of the time. There was great city manager. City Hall really backed us. The corporate sector really backed us. But it was really the time to develop programme and to roll it out consistently. There was a great about 10 years after it, I'd say, you know. But I would worry for the cultural infrastructure now. But the overriding memories are going to great events. You know, seeing those, I don't pass, and I'm sure lots of people don't, I don't pass the courthouse without thinking of the Kirkadurka plays, Merchant of Venice. I don't, I don't think about passing, you know, the Grand Parade without thinking of the French performance that was on there. I think about Cronus Quartet who are doing a big anniversary tour this year. They arrived in Cork, but they were ill and they couldn't play. And we all had to stand outside St. Luke's and meet a weeping audience to tell them that it was cancelled. You know, so I remember the events. I remember John Berger, who's now dead, coming and sitting in the Long Valley snug and people coming up to him because he's such a seminal art figure. And he's just sitting there having a quiet pint, giving his observations on Cork. There were so many amazing memories. I suppose it would be a perfect time for A Little Time by Beautiful South. Again, I think that that song to me kind of captures sometimes you need a little time to think about things. It's again, it's kind of a positive, upbeat song. And I think it puts me in a good mood. Yours for good. 
that was a little time at Beautiful South and as picked by my guest today, Mary McCarthy. Tell us about the plans to redevelop the Crawford Art Gallery and maybe you can tell us about Grafton Architects as well. Yeah, I suppose like, uh, I hope some of your listeners will know that Crawford is in a series of three buildings on Emmett Place. Uh, one is 300 years old, uh, was built in 1724, 23, 24, next building 1884 and the next building in 2000. It needs significant investment, I think. Anybody who's walked through the door kind of would find, sometimes it's a bit hard to find the entrance and it needs a physical investment to protect that infrastructure into the future. So we're fortunate that we've secured substantial money from government. Uh, so we then procured the services of an architect to master plan that with us and we went out to tender and we we're really lucky to be working with this amazing Irish team called Grafton, led up by uh, Yvonne Farrell and Shelley McNamara. Uh, Yvonne's from Offaly and Shelley is from County Clare originally. They're based in Dublin. They have an incredible team. They're international award winners. But what's really amazing about them is they really listen. They're very respectful to the place they're working and to the kind of heritage of the building because our building has significant heritage uh, qualities. We're a difficult project because in a large part it's conservation and architects and creatives want to express themselves. So where is the opportunity for them to express the kind of, you know, the fourth building really, the fourth, it's going to be by the kind of fourth architect actually on the site actually. So they're going to build, uh, they're doing, managing all the conservation, doing a lot of reconfiguring internally and then there's a large kind of a tall upright structure which up to 34 metres high being inserted at the back which will alleviate the current building of things like kitchens and storage so we can put a lot of functions that should come out of the you know 1834 wing in there and open up more of the old building to the public and also we'll have this amazing new gallery at the top so people have this incredible views down the river and into the north side of the city so it is a really exciting development uh, it's been now in the plans for about five years and we would hope to be um, you know having the contractor on site at the end of 24 we will be closed for a substantial period but I suppose with that, you're just hoping the public stays with you because what will be there afterwards will, you know, ensure that Crawford, as a much-loved Cork institution, will be available to the public for another hundred years. Uh, the pandemic, I couldn't wait for the Crawford to open again. It's good to hear. Just because I needed some escapism mm. from, mm. you know, the city. And how long would you envisage that the gallery would actually be closed for? I hate to articulate the time period, but it's going to be about two years, you oh. know. Yeah, and we will be announcing that later this year. I suppose we know that two years goes by very fast. Uh, we've had to do it in one go. If we didn't close fully, it would be much longer and much more expensive. It's also a really complicated project in the middle of the city. And we realise that that's going to, you know, take a large part of the city centre out for a period. But we hope that people would, would kind of appreciate that investment. And it really is going to, you know, we're open seven days a week. So we're very open when we're open. Um, and we'll be coming back very strong. Like you'll probably have read, we bought a significant amount of artwork in the last few years. We're really building up our holdings of really exceptional works because we have a great collection. We have a great series of buildings and we want citizens and visitors to be able to experience those on that historic site. Will there be any space for events I suppose we do a lot of events in different spaces already. Mm. So there won't be an event space per se, but the upper gallery, of course, would be of interest to people to do things in that are more, you know, more radical. But we will be having a screening room, which we currently have, and it's really significant to us, digital art. Um, I suppose a lot of the space will be much more acoustically treated. Like we have this amazing collaboration at the minute with the School of Music. Um, really beautiful, you know, students come in and play different music themed by rooms or by exhibition. So these are the kind of partnerships we certainly will still want to maintain. We also like do a lot of events during Midsummer Festival, so collaboration is still very important to us. Emmy Lou by First Aid Kit. Every time I go into that great cafe in the Opera House, the House Cafe, if any of your listeners might remember that, 
I swear the song used to always be on. And I got absolutely into that. Uh, I think it was the Lion's Roar album it comes off. Really kind of excellent. Again, it's very evocative of time and place for me and that particular cafe in the foyer of the operas. No 
That was Emma Lou by First Aid Kit and it was picked by my guest today, Mary McCarthy. Mary is the director of the Crawford Art Gallery. Mary, there are a lot of social issues at the moment, particularly around housing and vacancy. You can certainly see it around the city. There are a lot of empty buildings and established businesses like Nash 19 are calling it a day. Do you have any thoughts on how policy can be influenced by a more inclusive process? Should there be more civic engagement when it comes to planning and designing our city? Yeah, I'm very saddened, I suppose, since Christmas of old kind of closures like Pigal and Nash 19 and White Rabbit and uh, the Chinese Chungsung on Patrick Street and the more the electric, you know, there's a lot of places that are very important to me in my own mental map of Cork, actually. And, you know, places that have really given a lot to the cultural sector over the years. I think it's really there's something around there's something about insurance I think in Ireland like that we're very the costs of doing business are very high so you know the fact that it's hard to live over a shop because there's kind of fire regulations or insurance I get the need for a regulation but I think it becomes quite prohibitive to I suppose uh, affordable living and affordable doing business I think we would do well to look at some smaller European cities like if you go to a small city in Italy and France you see a lot of family businesses thriving actually on lower wages on lower cost base and maybe lower profit base, you could say, but maybe lower profit base because there's less outgoings. I think our the cost of doing business in Ireland is high and we need to look at that. Perhaps there needs to be more staggered rate bases, you know, that if you're a business of a certain turnover, you pay lower rates than the kind of square footage calculation that it's more currently on. Because certainly if we don't do something, all we're going to be left is a city full of chains and multinationals and no kind of contextual local flavour. Now we know that that's, um, that's happening a lot in the English speaking world. Like if you look at most English high streets and American cities as well, it's very much something that pertains to the English speaking world more than anywhere else actually. Like if you go to small cities in Spain, you do still see tapas bar that are run by families from generations. So I think we need to look at that. And I think we need to look at how we treat maybe family businesses differently would be controversial to do that, but um, how something artisanal, whether that's a startup or family, have some sort of different um, tax structure or, uh, I suppose, rates the cost of their doing business needs to be looked at. Mm. I think the kind of housing one is real crisis and it's affecting all of us. When we have employees coming to the Crawford Art Gallery now, they're finding it hard to have somewhere to live. It's gonna, it really affects everybody. And going back to, you know, when I was talking about, uh, you know, pulp or, you know, that whole moment of blur and all those coming out of England that a particular generation, it was because there was a busy creative sector living in the city. I think if we lose this kind of the chefs who are from Cork who care, the business people who are running businesses who, you know, when you go and ask them to sponsor a gig or an opening, they can make the decision right there rather than having to say, I'm going to have to go to California to get approval from the head company. You know, are we going to lose all that kind of instinctive support for each other that can go when the family businesses go? It is a crisis, I think, across kind of definitely Western Europe and certainly Ireland and England. In some ways, we have to really look at why isn't it viable? It was viable for 70 or 80 years. And I think some of the restaurants that have closed last week said it was no shortage of business, you know, that they have loyal supporters, but it's the outgoings are just too high. And I think that that increase, in some ways, the minimal wage increase, which I would be an advocate for, you know, the basic income, because that might alleviate some of these problems. Um, I think that just the owners you know, there's nobody protecting you as an individual when you own a business. You know, you are very liable. Uh, if you the costs kind of stay with you, it's very hard to go bankrupt, you know. So the system really exposes them, you know. But it is, we have to ask the question, why is it no longer viable? Are people not coming into cities to shop? Are we not willing to spend as much? Uh, do we expect to earn too much profit? Are we just not interested in being in a shop anymore, like standing in a shop working or going into one? 
Um, and if so, like then we have to be able to swallow the things we're going to lose, which is community, which is, you know, you will have something that's very atomized actually. And that's something I'd worry about. Like, do you have a very, sometimes like the Truman Show, like there's nobody there, you know, you'd have a very atomized kind of lonely city actually. And somewhere where, you know, if you've no mental references, like when I say like, I will miss, miss Nash 19 because it was somewhere I would have gone to, right? So when those things are taken away, you have no kind of reason to have those memories of place actually, you know? I used to love the fish bar when I was in electric, you know? So when you miss, when you are, even my generation would, would have remembered things like Henry's and Sir Henry's, I know it's kind of iconic to mention Henry's, but like they were places or like Donkey's Ears, that kind of pub strip over in Union Quay and the Phoenix. They were places that form you at a particular time and they give you a community of reference. So if you met anybody in any city in the world and you said, oh yeah, I used to go to the Phoenix and they'd go, oh, I used too. It gives you an immediate, uh, I suppose, community of connections in a city, even if you don't know that people's references, I think. Absolutely. I do hear it from, older generations, particularly my, say my mother's generation, where they, they just think the city is dead now. When you cycle down Patrick Street and you see Debenhams, which was Roche's stores, and directly across the road you have the Savoy, they're all boarded up, very iconic buildings but nothing going on. You look above any of the shop fronts, most of them might be vape shops now or something like that. There's nothing happening upstairs, which, yeah. which is obviously the regulations that you talked about. So that sense of place is being eroded for a few generations above my age, mm. you know. It's yeah. sad because you see old photographs of Cork and it's very busy. Mm. It's very busy. The city centre was very busy historically because people would come in. I suppose the internet has made everything big and small. And I think these are the consequences, I suppose, of technology, you know, and big now one coming out as is AI, but like now you can, I do it myself. I don't like doing it, but I do it. Everybody clicks away on Amazon or online, whatever online platform you're using. I do try and consciously think, can I buy it somewhere physical? But generally, if you want something quick, a lot of the DIY stores are way out of town or, you know what I mean? It's that notion of convenience, actually, like you would have had a lot of opportunity to buy almost everything in the city centre before. And I think, as you say, it's become quite homogenous at sports shops or vape shops in the main, actually. Yeah. So do you have any ideas or thoughts around civic engagement on designing our city or I think it being more inclusive, you know? I think inclusive design is really important. And I think it's really important when major parts of the city are being thought about, like, say for our own example with Crawford, for years before we finalised the brief, we met what we would consider our main stakeholders, artists, public and government, actually, our kind of funders, the people who we collaborate with and our audiences. And we kind of said, what would you like to change about here? Like what needs to be done better? So if you take that on a larger scale, if it's about parks or public spaces, I think we need to be asking the public, well, what will you use? Like what what is required? I think the city has done that, but it's very much about how they now act on it. And I think there is a bit of a problem that local authorities don't really manage the transport system like that's managed by the Department of Transport or by the bus company. So while they're the planning authority, they don't have a lot of influence on a lot of other things. But planning, the planning system itself, I would say needs a radical overhaul. Mm. You know, it's slow, cumbersome, expensive, and very often can give the kind of safest result. When you walk around European cities, you can, you, <laughs> it looks like there's a there's trust in the community and people are treated like adults. Sometimes in Cork, you might have a public toilet or a bench and they're just, all that stuff is kind of removed. So that functionality is removed because of antisocial behaviour, maybe. It's a difficult one for local authorities because I think it comes back to litigation. There's so much insurance. So there is a big culture of fear here, actually huge culture of fear. But I think that, uh, you know, taking away the benches and we've had this around our development because we're doing a new garden in front of Crawford and, you know, it'll be largely open by day. And we've been asked a lot, like, well, will there be antisocial behaviour? But we're kind of saying, well, there will be. 
but it's how you manage that. You just have to have another level of kind of, I suppose, uh, you know, passive security or by just having more people around. You, If you want to wipe everything out, you will just have nothing. Like you will have no benches, you'll have no public amenities. And we've been at that point early in Cork, as you say, where there's, you know, because I see it, people come into the Crawford to use the bathrooms because there are no other public bathrooms available to people. So, like, it, it means that we become a very harsh society, very privatised society, actually. And I think that is, again, a very English-Irish thing. It comes down to how we design our houses. We have a front door, front garden, but we really want the back garden where it's all very private, you know. We don't, we're not, until we really become, I suppose, a very much an apartment-driven community, we all don't have the same investment in the public realm. There's a lot of people who don't need to engage in the public realm at all because they can go back home. You know, so I think until everybody has to really care because everybody's in it, we won't have that level of publicness. I think that our public realm, like we call it public realm, but do we, you know? So I think that there needs to be more. We're all in this together. A safer public realm is good for everybody. It's not just for the people who are out there. The kids who are on their skateboards also need somewhere to go. The people who are doing drugs need somewhere probably to do what they're going to do. And I think there's efforts there to create safer zones for them actually. And I think a lot of them probably are not deliberately obstructive to others. They're just there by consequence or by, but of course it creates an environment of fear for many. I accept that. Again, I don't know why when I was picking these music, I got into a real kind of happy zone again from the 90s. It kind of reminds me again of my time in UCC and probably my time in America more actually kind of summertime music. There she goes.
that was There She Goes by the Laz and I was picked by my guest today, Mary McCarthy. Mary is the director of the Crawford Art Gallery. I did hear something one day on the street, uh, actually outside the Crawford, and somebody was talking about the plans, the redevelopments, whatever, and somebody was giving out about the amount of money. Well, we don't need art. We need, we don't, actually, it was, we don't need art and we don't need bike lanes. Okay. <laughs> what would you say to that person? I suppose it's funny, I'd say, first of all, the we, who are they speaking on behalf of? Because I think we have a lot of people who assume the we position. Um, I think that, you know, you can't separate art from life, actually. I think most people, you don't put on, you don't get up in the morning kind of going on of an artful day, you know. Most of us, probably put on our, our kind of Spotify or you put on your podcast or you listen to the radio. So we're immersed in culture all the time, actually. I think this is one of the great kind of myths that we're elitist and you don't need us. I think during COVID it was proven people really missed that kind of noise of culture, be it TV production, film production. Um, radio did continue. You know, radio is one of the great Irish things. I'm a massive radio fan myself, actually. And I think, you know, it's interesting with the debate on RT at the minute. I would miss Irish radio quite a lot, you know, be it Lyric or, you know, RT1, actually. I think we've got very good, uh, and as well, we have very good local radio stations, very informed and very good broadcasting. So I think it's not an either or. I think people in my sector need to bring those people along, that it's not something separate from them, actually. It's it's people like them uh, making work, that it's not somebody, there's some kind of myth of that goes back that there's an artist working in their cave who's being very patroned by somebody wealthy and that they're all like little pets somewhere, actually. Whereas, you know, people need to understand that artists are professionals that are working on minimum wage that are just like everybody else, actually. You know, that are, but that art can have this, it's not a challenge or an affront to you as in a person. It is somebody putting out very bravely a thought on the world. Like I really admire artists for, you know, whether it's writing a song or performing or kind of creating a painting or sculpture, they're actually putting their name to something. It's really brave, you know, mm. it's brave to do that, that you're putting yourself up there to be criticised, analysed, judged, collected, you know, criticised into the future. Yeah. So I think it's kind of understanding the motivations, but it's just because we're going to get money for our development, it doesn't mean that there's going to be less money for housing. It's, it doesn't work like that. It's not a simple balance sheet exercise. And, you know, I think it's proven a lot that money invested in culture actually reduces other kind of societal issues. You know, we do a lot of work with young people. We do a lot of work. And those young people are really important to us. They get converted at a very early age and they're from very mixed communities in the city centre. And they, you know, when we were closing COVID, it was one of the main things we tried to keep the building open for some of the workshops because some of the kids would say to us, you're all we have, actually. You know, you're, we don't particularly get on with our friends in school. We feel a bit isolated in that particular school, but we have a different community in here. We have a community of people who are kind of like us, you know. So I think in every city or place, it is important and that is priceless, actually. We do a lot of research, only in recent years. We do research on who's visiting us and what do they expect from us. Now, we do it randomly. We'd like to be doing it more. We do it a lot with the support of Fall to Ireland, actually. Um, and I was really surprised how young our audience is, because the perception is that it would be older, and it's not, you know, really a lot of young people. And I love, like, even when I was coming out today, you know, I we're pushing the hours of opening longer. So we're up until eight on Thursday. And in the New Crawford, we know that people want to be there between five and nine, probably on Thursday, Friday, possibly Saturday. Um, you know, young people come in and just stand in front of an artwork. And it's kind of amazing to see that it's not all digital. You know, they want to start on something really meaningful. Also, that it's free to come in there. 
you know. And you see them with the friends, they might be giggling away at the sculptures in the Canova Casts, but they can also be looking at something kind of serious. And I suppose it's just that act of looking, you know, that you get people. I think the more people become visually aware, the higher standards they'll have as well, actually, and the more confidence they'll have in demanding more from all of us, you know. Definitely our younger audiences, I feel, hold us a lot to account. And I think that's a good thing. You come out of Leaving Cert and you go to art college how hard is it to be an artist now, do you think? I think it's very hard. I think it was always hard. I think what's more hard about now is, and even myself, when I was going to college, you could rent somewhere for like £100 a month. There was kips. There's no kips now. They're all expensive. So that's the problem. I think a lot of our problems in Ireland stem from accommodation and property, actually. We need to get a handle on property. The costs of, of building property, the costs of owning property, the costs of the mortgage system, the bank system, it's all very historic. You know, the fact that you even have to have a job for so many years where you can get a mortgage. Nobody has a job for, you know, my own contract's five years and five years, max 10 years. So nobody has these jobs for lives, life anymore. It's not the normal. So the whole system needs to change. I think it's, there's a lot of art schools now. So there's many more art schools and many more places in art. And I suppose art colleges also have become more economically motivated. So numbers are higher. I think all education institutions are run very differently than they were 20 years ago. So there's more people going in and certainly there's less opportunity for people to be full-time artists. But an art education is still a very, very valuable education because no more than any other probably education, maybe close to medicine, you're challenged at every step of the way. You have to defend your ideas. So you're having to defend your creativity to tutors every step of the way. There's no just kind of, you know, like I suppose more my degree would be scram in the end and get through it. And you didn't have to really engage too much for until kind of maybe second and third year. Whereas uh, art students have to engage all the time. So it gives them a fairly critical, reflective, I think, personality. And many thrive in other professions like HR, psychology, advertising. Like many art college graduates are top of their game in different fields, but they bring that education with them. I'm a huge fan of Lamb Chop. I love their song, The Daily Growl. It's kind of moody, it's kind of grumpy, and it comes from Is A Woman. From a rope 
roughness of your hands you cope with cuddles and the gentle revolution. The guts and gluttons Chicken of the sea Hardly fill Your restless Thought an 
Underrated skill A hazard To the emotional challenge That was The Daily Growl and that was picked by the director of the Crawford Art Gallery, Mary McCarthy. Why do we need a Crawford Art Gallery in our city, Mary? What are the physical and spiritual benefits that it gives to our community? I suppose that what I think is great about the Crawford Art Gallery, it links to a big past. Like, so people come into us and they kind of go, why is this significant building here? Why has got Cork got some significant buildings? Why has got this big harbour? We become like a history interpreter or probably like a memory marker for the city, actually. It touched over 300 years ago at a time when Cork was very significant, you know, much more significant in the British Isles and really quite a, a big connection with London. Like we had we had and have significant connections still with London as an institution. Um, and it was kind of interesting. Cork was very much more rooted in that direction rather than the Dublin link. It was much more linked into London, France, that port Atlantic city arc through the trading, you know, of port and wine and food. So I think our history, Crawford reminds us of our history. It's a permanent reminder of our history as a customs house, as those amazing Canova casts that were given as a gift, you know, from Europe over 200 years ago. So even those being present tell a first-time visitor to Cork, this is a significant place. It's a cultural place, a European history. I suppose we're very aware that's a particular European kind of uh, narrative, I suppose, in history. But I think um, having institutions that have a long legacy is important. They help us interpret our heritage, but they also should be challenging enough to kind of make us think about what kind of future we want. And I suppose recently we've collected a lot of contemporary art, like over 1.5 million in the last 18 months, um, through, I suppose, us looking for money with the Irish Museum of Modern Art from our minister. And she was very willing to support us, I suppose, collecting contemporary art so that we could reflect on what our art is thinking and how are they interpreting the world around them. So I think we are, we're part of that kind of memory bank, actually, of what's happening at a particular time. And as you go forward in time, that'll become more important because I'm kind of curious, even when I'm much older, when I walk back into Crawford and we look at the works we bought that came out of COVID, how will we feel? Like, will they be evocative of that particular time? There's amazing artwork out there now in all art form, theatre, music, film that came out of that time. And, you know, the world is changing very, very fast. In the last decade, things are happening at a very accelerated pace. So I think institutions like ours that collect are important. In terms of a spiritual well-being, well-being, big buzzword. But we all know when you walk into certain buildings, you feel better than when you walk into others. It's very hard to explain why. It's generally like proportion materials, um, I suppose a feeling of hospitality. And that can be that can be either a contemporary building or a historic building. You know, I'm fortunate enough when I walk through Crawford in the morning, sometimes it's very early. And even this morning, I saw another little kind of a rainbow on the floor in a place I'd never seen it because the sun hits that old glass on the door, that beautiful, thick, beveled glass. And we see the, it's like our own little Newgrange every day. We see these like kind of uh, rainbows across the floor at various points. And I think there's nothing like that, I suppose, older building bearing witness to a city that's changing. Like I think that about the Canova Cast all the time. I think they're 210 years looking at us, you know, it's kind of incredible actually to me. It's kind of, it puts in perspective all the short-term decisions that we make. I'm naturally an impatient person. So to be five years kind of in the building and the making and it's not still on the ground, I'm going to go, come on, when's it going to start? But like when you think about that part of the building's been there for 300 years, five or our building by the time it's reopened, you know, it'll be kind of eight years, I would say, seven, eight years in the making. It's a very short time in the history of a city. 
And I suppose that's what I think about Cork in a way that we're going through a seismic change now, one that we don't particularly like, maybe. There are big changes happening. I don't know where it's going to go, but it'll be interesting to see, will we really revert kind of shop owners running shops or will the city have to become radically different like that it might just be all residential? You know, that trading may have to cease in a lot of ways. It might just become people living and small shops. It's hard to tell. It's very hard to tell. I think we're at a real critical junction. And I think since Christmas now has been a real scary wake up call for all of us in Cork that, you know, and I'd say we're only seeing the start of it, actually. Like we had seen it a little bit, I think, in 23 post-COVID. A lot of people just said enough. You know, I can't can't reinvent myself all the time. And there has to be easier ways to make a living, actually. But I think now, you know, you're seeing you're seeing bigger players now close, you know, and they're they're people who are resilient. They're not people who, who are getting out lightly. They're people who have reinvented themselves quite a number of times, actually, and they don't see a future now. And that's really concerning. I'd be concerned that we also have a city that is just for young people. My favourite cities are cities where you have all ages rambling around, you know, that you might have grandparents and kids and that it's kind of feels safe for everybody, actually. Like we have a real chance in Cork with the Docklands, actually, and that's beginning to take off to make that a proper intergenerational city, perhaps. If I was 24, would I, I, know. Would I notice this happening? Would I, know. I care? That's the thing. You see, that's the interesting question. I think that sometimes too, if you don't really love Cork, then will you... You know, all of the people I know who've left Cork, a lot of them are living in London or America, but they still love Cork, actually. You know, they love it. Whereas if you just have this kind of nowhere map of it, no references, no real memories that are linked to place, you might as well be in Bristol, you know, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, wherever you want, really, I don't know. Like my generation would probably have more romantic kind of view of Cork, like it's kind of nostalgic, actually. It's kind of, you know, sunny days, like sitting in bars, going to concerts. Music was kind of big for our generation. Like place, being present was big, you know, turning up, um, going to openings, like seeing things, like seeing your first kind of Samuel Beckett play in the art college or something, you know. You remember those, because we didn't have as much access to, obviously Netflix wasn't there, or, you know. It was kind of different. It was just different, yeah. I think there's still something exceptional about Cork, though. Whenever I'm away for a while and I come back, and I could be away now for, for work for a day or might be away for a few days myself or might be whatever. Like there's something about the light here. I think it's that kind of Atlantic light and the topography of Cork, that kind of, you know, the kind of hills. And you just get a glimpse of something historic at times, like that light that you talk about or a particular view. And I'm conscious those views are changing, like the Duckland silos are all coming down. Um, but I think that, you know, like th- there is a particular light, there's a particular sense of history that you get in Cork that you don't get everywhere, actually. It's something about the place, like you know it's been, that it's got layers and layers and layers of history. It's not a new place. I think that seeps through it. And I kind of like that. I sometimes wish we cared for it a bit more, you know. It can look a bit scruffy around the edges. I wish the people who own buildings, I wish we all cared for it a bit more. So Mary, you've been in your role now as director of the Crawford for six years. What has the role opened your eyes to, do you think? God, I know. I've had loads of surprises, actually. I think, um, you know, a few of the surprises of the role is uh, how generous the public are. You know, uh, there's a lot of weeks, a lot of people are offering us things to donate to us, actually. It's really quite exceptional. People are really generous. They they trust us. They want things that are really valuable to be in our care for the public for the future. I suppose I have never worked in an organisation um, where people are very positively predisposed to the building and the place and the people. Like generally, even if people don't go there, they're kind of, they're kind of, oh, it's a good thing. You know, they're not, they're not knocking it. There's not a predisposition to dislike the Crawford. And that's a real plus, actually. I work with great people. 
you know, they make me laugh every day. We have a lot of stressy times, but we actually have a good laugh as well. Um, I think the challenging sides of it, I suppose, have been the patience bit. You know, it does take time to make change, like to get big projects off the ground. And people nationally would say we really expedited our capital project. Like we're very far ahead of a lot of our national peers because we've worked really hard with the board and the staff and government on the project and the architects. But I suppose things take time in Ireland, like very heavy administrative burdens, you know. And I think that's a real big change, be it in education and culture, that the level of administration we all have to do to get to the same outcome uh, is heavy. And I'm not sure it always gets a better outcome, particularly around procurement and stuff like that. We spend a lot of money on making sure that we do everything right, you know. And you'd have to, you'd be concerned that that would squash a lot of creativity or possibility. But it's a great job. I'm really lucky. I'm a six years into a maximum 10-year term, so I have about another four years to kind of uh, fulfil our collective vision. But it's a great organisation. Are you excited for the future of art in Cork City? I am, because all the artists I meet are brilliant. And actually, one of the things that I think Cork is booming a bit again from people are coming back to live here. So a lot of significant artists who are achieving are choosing to stay in Cork. And it's been a while since that's been happening. Um that's sometimes because accommodation elsewhere is really prohibitively expensive. But I think Cork's getting more connected to the world with the airport, many more routes. I think second cities, and I'm going to put Cork in that term, although it's technically probably a third city in Ireland, but um, as a kind of second city mentality is kind of interesting. It's a place where people can easily have access to many other creatives. So I think, you know, the, I, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. I'm very excited about Cork Docklands. I'm excited about the apartments that that's going to bring on board, the kinds of public spaces that are well designed from what I've seen. Um, I think there's a number of developers around Cork who are going to create interesting projects. Like, I love the development near the, near the railway station. I know not everybody does, but I like the public realm there. I like some of the big halls that are still unoccupied. Indeed, I have my eyes on them for some projects. Um, I think there's a new expression of architecture there that respects the heritage, but is not homogenous. It's not all the same. I know the Dean Hotel is controversial. Some people like it, some people hate it. I quite like it, the outset. It's different. It's different. I think it's important that we, we not everything's the same height or the same material. And I think that's sort of what they did there. I think bringing a lot of different architects into one small area has been successful. I think we do need to control design principles, like really what we need is an architectural policy probably for the city or a design policy. But I am excited for Cork's future. I think in some ways, maybe it's an age thing, you know, as well. You kind of learn to not be too fearful because the good always rise up. Like, you know, young people will take hold of whatever's happening, you know, and I think we'll see a change now in the next elections. People are probably going to look for housing change. The unfortunate thing, back to the impatience bit, none of that's going to change fast, you know. None of it, it's going to be years for, I would think, before we can get a handle on that. But I think that things will change. That We're just in a period of rapid change at the moment. But I, I am optimistic because I suppose when I was going to college, it was kind of late 80s. That was really a pretty dismal time. You know, and I did res I did think about the 80s. I don't remember much about the 80s now. It sounds like an absolute dinosaur. But, um, you know, loads of people were leaving Cork at that point. We knew we could never work in Cork, you know, when we were in college. Uh, businesses were closing down right, left and centre. Yet our nearest neighbour in England, everything was kind of booming in England while everything was tanking here, actually, in the 80s. But there was a great possibility then we were really catapulted out of here. And in a way, we never thought we'd come back. But you kind of do. You know, you kind of do because Cork is that kind of place and people laugh about it nationally. You know, Cork people go back to Cork, 
you know, but it is because it is special. It's not because we don't want to achieve elsewhere and most people come and go for a bit of their lives. But there is something about living in Cork, the food culture, the kind of beauty of the city, the access to the coast, you know, Cork City is very well positioned. Very creative as well. Very creative. And I think good universities, actually. I think that, you know, the things we should never forget about Cork is that we have UCC, MTU, the College of Commerce, very good education, training board system, a lot of education. Like, we're not a poor city. We seem poor at times. Like, if you walk through the city, sometimes you kind of think this is poor. But actually, we're not poor because we have a very well-educated population. And I think when you have a well-educated population, you don't have that hopelessness that does exist in some other global cities. Like they're, One of the things that we need to make sure is that there are lots of pathways to people to have different careers, not always to universities, but that the different kind of courses are different lifelong learning experiences. It's a pleasure talking to you, Mary. Thank you very much. Thanks you for too. coming on the show. Uh, do you want to give us your last tune? I suppose my last tune is another um, rather kind of thoughtful one. Uh, I suppose I was really stuck between Matthew E. White and Iron and Wine, but I went with Matthew E. White. And the name of the song is Will You Love Me? I think it's really kind of kind of thoughtful, kind of moody. I was picking it on a Sunday. And I think, again, it's kind of a particular, that album when it came out, I think I was listening to it kind of nonstop. And I kind of always relate to Iron and Wine. I put the two of them kind of together. But I think Matthew E. White has a great kind of soulfulness. Oh, baby, will you love Child, will you hold me? Or will you lay beside me at least the most of the night? But baby, you're magnificent. Child, you're intelligent. And honey, you compare the rent with that smile.
Tune in to Keeping Track every Monday at 1pm on UCC 98.3 FM. Keeping Track is hosted by me, Dave Hackett. I interview people in our community from all different backgrounds and my guests also choose the music that they love. When I'm not hosting an interview, I'll be playing a random selection of alternative music, old and new. Stay up to date with the show on Instagram where I announce upcoming guests and radio documentaries. You can listen back to previous shows on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Keeping track every Monday at 1 here on UCC 98.3 FM.